everyone, this is Kina Wolfenstein, and you're listening to the Complex Trauma Recovery Podcast. I'm super excited for you guys to hear my interview today with Dr. Christine Gibson. She is amazing. But before I introduce her, let me just go over my announcements. So if you check out the podcast description below, you'll find my link tree, and there are a number of resources there, including a list of therapy directories to find an experiential therapist in your area, access to four different educational workshops that I've done, and the website for my practice, Strong Roots psychotherapy speaking of my practice we do have two wonderful therapists at strong roots who work with complex trauma and are accepting clients in the states of texas and missouri so if you're in one of those states and looking for a experiential therapist you can find their bios by clicking the link below Lastly, if you'd like to support my podcast and my work, please consider subscribing to my Patreon. My Patreon grants you access to a range of bonus content, including live Q&As and a series of educational videos for therapists learning how to work with complex trauma. The support for my subscribers really does help make it possible for me to make this content, this podcast, so I deeply, deeply appreciate it. The link for that will also be found in the description below. And now to introduce my interview with Christy today. So we have been mutuals on TikTok for a long time. I've always really loved and benefited benefited from her content. And today's interview was a little bit different. Instead of getting into the nitty gritty of kind of clinical trauma therapy, we talked a little bit more about systemic issues. We kind of took a, a wider lens approach to talking about trauma and our healthcare system. So it was a really fascinating discussion. Um, Christy has so much amazing expertise. So here's her bio. Christine is a family physician in Calgary, Canada, with a background in justice work, medical education, and global health. A skilled facilitator and speaker, she's engaged in building individual and community resilience. Her writing creates the woven narrative between her interests, well-being, trauma recovery, and the power of story. She is a skilled trauma therapist, understanding that stress lives in human and community bodies, and the author of the book, Modern Trauma Toolkit, as well as co-founder of Safer Spaces Training. So I will be including the links for her book and her website below so you guys can check her out. All right. Enjoy the episode. Okay. Awesome. Hi, Christy. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here, Kina. So, um, yeah. Can you just start by telling us about you and, and your work and what you're excited to talk about today? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a family physician in Western Canada. And uh, I'm 20 some years in. Um, The reason that you and I know each other is because about eight years ago now, I recognized that because I work in equity deserving communities, um, I wasn't able to treat their underlying problem. Um, Mm -hmm. All of them had really, really severe complex trauma. Like we're talking ACE scores or adverse childhood experiences of like eight or nine um, Mm -hmm. universally. So as a family physician, how that shows up is just constant physical and mental health problems and and social issues that you can't fix. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a it's one of those reasons why people who work in you know complex medical practices often end up getting lots of cynicism and burnout. And I was reaching that point. And what I came to also because I was caught in the earthquakes in Nepal in 2015. Oh wow. So, yeah, so I had my own kind of event trauma and um, near death experience that happened and that really made me start thinking about trauma and I started researching it and I took a deep dive and I was like, "Oh, that's why I'm not making anyone better. It's because mm-hmm. they all have trauma responses and I don't know what to do with those and and we had no resources in the public system. So we have, you know, CBT psychotherapy and 
I was like, okay, well, if I can't get the resource, I better be the resource. And mm. I started studying complex trauma. So um, my goal was to be an integrated traumatologist so that I could offer lots of different possible therapeutic modalities um, because this is a community that had no resources to access anything themselves. And mm. um, that was where my journey started. Wow. That is so cool. And I love that there are professionals in, in different fields that are thinking about complex trauma, right? That it's not just something happening in like the clinical therapy space, because yeah, you know, complex trauma shows up in all of these other ways. So working as a doctor, working in, I mean, all all kinds of different fields, I would imagine, you know, people are working with clients with complex trauma and maybe not recognizing it or not knowing how to refer those people to the proper resources. So that is a really cool really cool foundation. Um, so what did you find in your research or where did your research lead you on this journey? <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, the first thing that happened was I started talking about it with lots more people and I found a local expert. So her name is Saima Habib and she is a person with lived experience. And I met her at the food center. She was working on food justice and she started talking about things like polyvagal theory and mm. complex trauma and ACEs. And the the conversations that she and I would have just absolutely blew my mind. So she was the one who catalyzed all of the research that I did. And honestly, I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but I read probably 300 books over the course of the next five years. Wow. And it, yeah, it was, it was, really intense. It was more studies than I had done for my master's degree in medical education. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Like, I, how did I just do this much studying? And, and then, you know, lots of clinical certifications. I think I'm certified in about 12 different modalities. Um, and Very I was like, cool. how, did, how did I just do that without getting any more letters behind my name? So then I did that. So I'm, mm -hmm. I just on Friday submitted the second draft draft of my doctorate. So I'm doing a doctorate in transdisciplinary study. And one of my three portfolios is trauma studies and um, the work that I've done in that area. Wow. That is so cool. I'm so impressed. And I love the, uh, the versatility of like studying all of these different modalities too. And I've really enjoyed seeing your content about what you found in terms of in terms of studying those different modalities, um, especially um, some of your content that you've posted about cognitive behavioral therapy, because, you know, whenever I'm making my content, talking about why cognitive behavioral therapy often does not help people with complex trauma, one of the comments that I get a lot is people saying, but it's the gold standard, it's the most evidence-based, it's the most research-driven. Um, and so I was really like validated <laughs> by seeing some of your, your research about that. Can you speak a little bit about what you found in that arena? Yeah. I mean, and it's, it is tricky. I think I run into the same problem you do because I get a lot of pushback in the medical community, even people like psychiatrists specifically mm -hmm. who say this is the gold standard is CBT and prolonged exposure. Um, in including yeah. in some of my workspaces, I get that pushback, um, with some of my modalities, like accelerated resolution therapy is starting to get some really great evidence, um, yes, around, around PTSD. It's one of my favorite tools in my toolkit. It's it's basically a modern version of EMDR. So EMDR was a download that, you know, Francine Shapiro got when she was walking through Central Park. Um, and Lainey Rosenzweig got another download about ART. And it's basically just a faster version. It almost always takes a single session and it is brilliant. So yep. um, 
I, I, I push back around that, but then some of the other somatic based modalities do not have the same level of like randomized clinical trials, but yeah, I really think the reason, well, there's twofold reason. CBT and CPT or cognitive processing therapy is highly manualized. So you can just kind of go with a formula. You're not, you're using the patient's content, but it's really formulaic in terms of, well, these are the cognitive frameworks that I'm looking for. And it's basically, to me, it's a shame-based modality where you're looking for the wrong ways that people think. And what I really prefer when it comes to cognitive therapies, and I, it's not that I don't use them, I definitely do, but I use the ones where they take your thinking patterns as a right way to think. Well, why does it make sense that you think this based on your painful past experience, your ancestral trauma? Why would it make sense that this is how you know, your brain perceived the world and this is your framework. And it's just so much less shame-based than the CPT and CBT yeah. frameworks. And I, I just think they're, they're, they're gentler, they're more compassionate and I much prefer them. So even though there is lots of evidence around CBT, um, for me, it doesn't work for two reasons. One, the manualized pattern doesn't work because um, patients are so complex when it comes to trauma. And, and then secondly is, it takes a shame-based approach. And that's really one of the things yes. we're trying to help people figure out is how they can work on their own shame. And enhancing that is, you know, just creating more problems. So I what I push back against is is just the simplicity of RCTs. Like yeah. it, it like there's some therapies that it's just too complicated to do a randomized clinical trial on because you right. can't do a set number of visits and a set formulaic approach. Um, but maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that is right. more in keeping with good trauma therapy. Right. Yes, exactly. What the, the piece about it being manualized really speaks to me because, you know, yeah, the, you know, there's a lot of incentive to fund, you know, these clinical trials when it comes to cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, because it's easy, it's easy to research. It's easy to get these results. And the type of therapy that I like to do with clients with, inter, you know, internal family systems, parts work, somatic work, polyvagal theory, coherence therapy, it can be, you know, quick and effective, but it's definitely not manualized. Like it's so, there's so much individual variation for how it looks for each client and the pace that we need to go at. Some people are ready, you know, to go quick. Some people really need a slower approach, you know, to help their nervous systems feel safe. And yeah. so there's just not that same, like, you know, insurance is not going to be able to benefit from, you know, research as much as, uh, you know, the systems in place can kind of point to, these like manualized therapies and, and call them evidence-based. So well, I and think you have to think of who's benefiting, right? Like yes. who's benefiting from a therapy that takes like six sessions. And, right. you know, I've, I've worked in nonprofit environments. I've worked in lots of environments where they've, you know, got a certain amount of funding for these things. And so they just tell you, okay, well, you can refer for six sessions. I'm like, okay, well, what if they're not okay after six sessions, you know? Right, um, right. And that was the kind of resources I did have. So that was what, another reason that I was like, okay, this one size fits all narrative just doesn't work in trauma. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The one size fits all. Absolutely. And I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think I know anyone with complex PTSD that can get what they need in six sessions. Like it's, it's mm -hmm. complex, right? Like it's, I mean, it's PTSD is already complex. And then when we add in the complexity of like recurring, ongoing, compounding traumas throughout life, you know, sometimes traumas that people have been experiencing for decades, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, the idea that we should be able to, 
you know, create significant change in six hours, just, it feels really like ridiculous, you know, in, in most cases. Well, and I can't say I haven't done it. I, um, I work in the addictions clinic as one of my, you know, um, clinical environments as a therapist. So I, I do work as a family physician. Um, um, but I work again in equity deserving spaces where I end yeah. up kind of self-referring into my trauma practice a lot. Oh, cool. Um, and then I work at the refugee clinic. So I'm their main trauma person there. Cause they, they don't have, like, they do have therapy, but they're more just like stabilization therapy. Mm, um, mm-hmm. So it's, it helps to some extent, but it's, it's not actually processing any trauma. So um, those are um, the two main office-based environments where I work. And I would say at the addiction clinic, I can think of three different people that I saw for six sessions and mm. they sailed through it because they had specific event traumas. And right, right. So if if you've got an event and you can work through the event with something like ART, mm-hmm. even if it's a you know a, a theme of events and this thing happened numerous times, sometimes you can get away with it. But it mm-hmm. it is rare. It is really rare. And to to assume that that could work for most people is where I just really balk at it. And yeah. I'll you know to this day I'll get this, some pushback. Well, you've been seeing this person for more than six months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're just getting started. You know, yes. they have not established safety in their nervous system yet. Like yeah. the amount of trauma they've had is going to take a long time. And I'm sorry, but I move at the speed of trust. Yes. I was going to say the trust and the rapport is such a big part of it because like, you know, we, as, as clinicians, as practitioners are strangers to, you know, to people coming into our practice, they don't know us, they haven't, you know, established trust with us. And so the idea that people should just be ready and willing to open up to their deepest traumas, you know, right off the bat from meeting me, like that feels, you know, disrespectful of, of their boundaries and, and consent and really can be kind of re-traumatizing because that's a common theme of trauma, right? Is not getting to have your boundaries and not getting to have consent and, and being forced, um, into situations that you're not comfortable with. So honoring the pace of the client's nervous system is like one of the most important things that I think we do as trauma practitioners and then insurance and these different like rigid protocols make that difficult. Yeah. Yeah. You nailed it. That's exactly right. Um, I mean, you can re-traumatize people. I, I've actually, I mean, I'm sure this has happened to you too, but, um, I was really surprised when I started doing more therapy that I realized many therapists aren't trauma-informed. I I thought that would just be like a universal thing because I (laughs) didn't go that way for my training. Yeah. Um, So I just assumed that would be standard. And um, the amount of people who've been traumatized by therapy has really shocked me. So that takes extra time to earn their trust and for them to know that you're trying to create a safer space in that therapeutic environment. Um, So yeah, I mean sometimes you have to do damage control too, just from their, their perception of a therapist and definitely their perception of a doctor. My mm-hmm. gosh, the number of people that I see who've been through medical trauma, especially oh my in my high ACE community, because they constantly have medical diagnoses and, and yes. physical symptoms. Um, the, the amount of medical trauma is just sky high. So luckily I, had a lot of them in my family practice. And so we, we relationally healed that trauma to a great extent, but, um, yeah, it's a very real phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There was something you said earlier too, which was about, um, the difference between like shame-based modalities versus this approach of like, how do your experiences and your symptoms make sense or how do your symptoms make sense based on your experiences? And I feel like that is like the number one 
difference between trauma-informed and not trauma-informed therapy, in my opinion, is just that lens of like seeing, seeing things as coherent and adaptive and functional versus seeing things as like pathological or maladaptive or, you know, something that is like wrong to be corrected. And, um, that if there was one thing that could change in the mental health field, that's something that I really hope becomes more integrated into, into our clinical training, you know, just that, that way of kind of looking at clients experiences. Yeah. yeah. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. I, I, um, and, and it's not just psychotherapy. It's everything. Like yeah. it's, it's so pervasive in health and well-being is, is this perception that there's like these disease states and these, these wrong things. And sometimes mm-hmm. even physical symptoms are signals. Like there's signals that something needs repair or something mm-hmm. needs attending to, or something needs attention. Mm-hmm. And it's such a different way of conceiving of the human body is, and signal pathways like pain, for example, sometimes yeah. signals, um, physical damage and sometimes it doesn't and when we when we think of it as just one thing um we often miss you know the the real the real issue the real wound. yeah yeah I love that you're bringing kind of the connection between because you know we talk all the time about how the body is relevant in in mental health and in trauma and so the you know the kind of physical body and the experience of the physical body is something that that people also really struggle with and and have trauma around. And one thing that I've come up across, uh, come up against a lot with my clients is this sense that they are not trusted to be the experts of like what is happening in their bodies, which I think is so Mm. similar to what happens with therapy, right? Where people aren't really trusted to be like the experts in their own experiences in life. Um, but I've, I've heard all kinds of stories, right? Where people were trying to seek out medical care. And basically the messaging that they get is like, you are not the authority here. You need to just like listen to these authority figures, even if their advice doesn't feel right to you, even if their advice is maybe causing like more harm or more damage, just really this like erosion of self-trust that kind of happens um, in medical fields. Is that something that you have found as well? Oh God, I got like tears to my eyes when you started talking because it's so true like we take their self-awareness and self-efficacy and we destroy it um in many cases and and so i i'll I'll share a piece of what i came to in my journey too because there's been a lot of healing and work on my end because i i really um i i I think feel strongly that you you can't do therapy without being in therapy. And totally. so I've, I've got three therapists. Um, oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, privilege, right? But mm-hmm. I I have a cognitive, a somatic, and a psychedelic therapist um, because cool. there are three different things. And yeah. I, I just need lots of work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but one of the one of the problems in the medical profession is our own shame. So mm-hmm. we get taught this message that we're supposed to cure things. Yeah. And there's a big difference between healing and curing and many mm. things can't be cured and that's okay. There's, there's a way to reframe what healing could look like. Uh, and th- the shame that we carry around undifferentiated symptoms, which is how a lot of people with complex trauma show up and uh, a lot of female presenting bodies in the world, um, yeah. they, they can have very, um, undifferentiated symptoms compared to the medical textbooks, because we all know those were designed for the white male body. Right. Um, 
And we constantly perpetuate harm by saying, well, you've got to fit into this narrative. You've got to fit into my textbook. And if you don't, then it's your fault, not mine. Right. And that is our own shame because Mm -hmm. we feel this like, you know, unrelenting uh, guilt when we, when we can't solve a problem. Yes. And that's our shit to work on. But what we end up doing is we project that onto the patients and say, well, it's your fault that I can't solve you as a problem. Oh, and yes. we, don't, we don't have the right tools to even do it. So it's it's like this cycle that we get stuck into on both sides and it it harms both sides. And I I I don't I definitely want to acknowledge people's medical trauma because it's a very real thing. But I also just want to bring the other side of it into it because I don't think medical professionals really heal their own trauma around this stuff. And um that's why we get caught up in that cycle. And mm-hmm. it's something I'm just starting to shine a bigger light on. But um I'm hoping to write two more books. And so my second book really is like that, the the pathways of the signals and, and how medical professions don't understand what that signal pathway feels like for the patient, um, yes. both around pain, but also, you know, <laughs> endometriosis and migraine and um, yeah. IBS and all of these things that are termed like functional diseases, but mm-hmm. um, it, it's really strong signals that the body is sending and you know, people interpret it in really different ways. So I'm just curious about all these things that we don't learn in medical school. And I'm hoping to, you know, get involved in changing paradigms. It's one of the reasons why I'm trying to schlep this book at medical conferences is just to say, hey, this is stuff you don't know, but you need to know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought up the other side of it because that's something that I think about a lot with therapy. I mean, one of the things that frustrates me most is like when I feel like when therapists are not equipped again, not by their own faults, but because our whole educational system doesn't really, you know, adequately train people to work with complex trauma, to work with the body, to work from, you know, these different eclectic frameworks. So when therapists end up in a situation where they have a client that their modalities and their tools are just not working for this person and this person is not getting the help that they need. Yeah. It's like this, you know, this blaming that happens where then clients will be told, you're being treatment resistant or you're not putting the work in or, you know, you're um, like, I can't help you if you don't want to help yourself. Like all of these things that, that place blame and shame onto the client. And I think you're spot on that it's coming from shame and panic within the practitioner of like, oh my God, I, I can't, you know, kind of face these feelings of inadequacy or whatever gets triggered, you know, when I'm having someone that I'm not able to help that my tools are not, are not appropriate for. And I wish so much that there was space for, for that humility to be okay, you know, to be like, you know, something's not working here. And that doesn't have to be like a failure for either one of us, right? That doesn't have to be like bad client or bad therapist. It can just be like mismatch of skills, not the right modalities, not the right approaches. Let's try to figure out what does work for this person. But instead I I totally see that dynamic. It's like, it becomes this whole like shame blame dynamic. That's just so unhelpful. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's true of lots of physicians because our, um, the, the pedagogy of medicine is so much about like, we're the expert on stuff. And I love how you brought up about people being the expert on their own minds and bodies. Um, like we don't really get taught that we get taught that we're the expert on those things Mm -hmm. as, as physicians. And I mean, you're just setting yourself up for failure because you're not, um, and, and, and I mean, it's not to say there's tons of great doctors out there who do get this, but, um, it's just not how we're taught. And, uh, 
that's not always true. Um, osteopaths, integrative medicine practitioners, they are actually getting taught in new ways. And I am starting to understand why uh, there's this huge pushback against traditional Western medicine. And mm. it has its place. I mean, if I'm septic, if I'm having a heart attack, yeah. I'm going straight to the emergency room. But if I have complex symptoms, mm -hmm. um, there might be more to explore. And yeah. I, I don't believe that like, instead of, you know, selling Western based formula, pharmacology should be substituted with like high priced vitamins. I'm not a huge fan of that either. Like, I mean, a lot of people are just out to make a buck. Yes, um, absolutely. But there's just, there's a lot that's missing. And I, I yeah. do think a lot, it has to do with trauma and, and maybe it's just because this is the, um, there's this uh, parable, I think it's a Buddhist parable about an elephant and there's these blind people who are examining different pieces yes, of it. And so yes, Everyone one person's looking at different. the trunk and yeah. one person's looking at the nose and like trauma is the, the is the leg that I've been focused yeah. on for a lot of years now. And I, I see a lot of things through that lens, both from like individual therapy and individual medical practice perspective, but also this huge ecosystem level things. Like I am I'm really looking at these bigger problems like a pandemic or climate science or yeah. um, polarization in um, politics and in nonprofit work. And, you know, I, I'm really interested in all of those bigger systems through the lens of trauma. And, you know, the more privilege that I have because I've got all these letters behind my name, um, the more that I have the capacity to leverage that privilege to, to, to do more systems change. And the more that I can share people, well, how this relates to trauma, that's something that I'm really hoping to do with the second half of my career. Yes. Yeah. I so agree. I love, I remember uh, there was a kid's book that I used to read. That was that parable with the, it's like a bunch of mice, you know, feeling this big elephant. And I agree that there's so many pieces and that the, the path forward for the best healthcare is to have like a truly kind of integrative approach, you know, where, where we're not just too focused on one, one particular piece of it. Um, but definitely the trauma piece has been seriously under, you know, under considered under included. So I'm, I'm so glad that there's more focus on that. Um, and I, yeah, can you talk a little bit about the modern trauma toolkit and, and the book that you did recently publish? I'm actually looking at it right now. It's so excellent. The, the parts that I've read, I really have enjoyed. Oh, thank you. That, that means so much coming from you, to be honest. Um, oh. So I, I wrote this book for a couple of reasons. A lot of my patients would say, is there a book that you recommend? And of course, there's all kinds of amazing books out there. There's, um, you know, Pete Walker's book about complex trauma. There's Bessel van der Kolk's book about the body keeps the score um, in addictions. There's uh, the uh, In the Realm of Hungry Gross by Gabor Mate. Yeah. But there were two things that I was just thinking could be in a book. And it just, I didn't find it. It didn't exist. The first one was accessible to anyone with any level of health literacy and um, with diverse experiences. So mm -hmm. um, I work with lots of young people, people of color, you know, racialized people who've been through a lot of racial trauma, um, a lot of female identifying people who um, have found some of the aspects of those books triggering. Um, yeah. And so the idea of accessibility was key for me. So I wanted this to be in a language that was nurturing and you didn't feel like someone was, you know, attacking you by triggering you constantly. You felt like you were getting hugged while you were reading the book. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't know that that's 
entirely possible. That was definitely my intention. It was just to say, this is going to be gentle and nourishing and it's not going to hurt you. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't promise that. Of course, some people are still going to be triggered. And I, I've gotten feedback that it is still a hard read for some people because I'm talking about these big subjects, but I, I paid yeah. five beta readers, um, women of color, pr- predominantly one is trans. And I just said, Hey, you know, help me make this safe. Help me make this like something that you can pick up. Yeah. Um, and actually promised them some royalties if those ever come through. (laughs) Um, cause they were, they were tremendous. They were instrumental in making this book what it is. Yeah. And then the second thing was just comprehensive. Like I just wanted to include absolutely everything that you need to know that's foundational about trauma. And so the book was supposed to be about 50,000 words. And in the end it's like 80. And I I felt kind of bad about that because I wanted it to be quite skinny, but I also wanted it to be comprehensive. And I I think because I made it an easy read, I don't think it's terrible that it's as long as it is, but there was just some key concepts that were really important. And when I gave the outline of what I wanted the book to include to the publisher, I did not deviate. Like the book I handed them was the exact outline. And I came up with that outline in less than an hour. I just knew exactly what I wanted to put in a book. Yeah. Um, these were all the key concepts that I want my patients to understand. And a lot of it is things like polyvagal theory to explain what is PTSD? What's the clinical definition? And then in a really non-shame-based way, how does that show up in the body? And why would it make sense that it shows up in the body in that way? So people can really understand their own neurobiology in words that make sense to them. Um, But I also wanted to talk about diet and I wanted to talk about ASMR and sound and, and what actually happens in the body when you're making sounds. So why would music like singing along Mm. with something be really deeply healing. Mm. And it's something that I teach my patients. I'll teach them like a a Brahmari breath, like a yoga breath, or I'll teach them like how to hum and talk about their vagus nerve and talk about the exhalation and all of the different things that something so simple can do. Yeah, And just help them understand it can be simple because like just to even approach working on your trauma sounds so daunting. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, well, what if we just started with humming? Um, and just help the therapy itself become accessible. Like these are really easy things to build your toolkit. Everything in the book, like I have 40 different exercises, most of them individual based, but some are at the community level. You know, policy work is important too when we talk about trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted people to be able to say, oh yeah, I like this. I'm actually enjoying this. And this feels good rather than this is uncomfortable. Like someone's right. making me do gratitude journaling again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So <totally. laughs> I'm just not feeling it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm looking at the, the preface where you have these, um, I feel like it's, this is the wrong word, but the, the different people that endorsed the book or, or wrote their, um, their praises about it. And I'm seeing you got, uh, Dr. Stephen Porges, Dr. Gabor, Gabor Mate, Dr. Han Ren. Like I'm like totally fangirling out about <laughs> all these people that me that too. The book. That is so cool. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, um, I've known Gabor for a long time now because he's a family doctor in Vancouver, like right, an hour right, yeah. from me in Canada. He's he's like a contemporary, I mean, not age-based, but um, that's the other thing, Kena, is like, because I work in anti-oppressive spaces and I actually, I ran a residency in health equity for six years, mm-hmm. like I actually created it. So health equity is really important to me. So when I recognized that all of the so-called experts in trauma were 80-year-old men, I was like... <laughs> 
what the f like yeah. okay you know there's janina fisher there's pat ogden there's there's like yeah, some there, great yeah. people in the field but they're not the ones who are on all the podcasts and all the recordings and mm-hmm. you know it's like we just need more voices in this space yes so um i mean I, i'm a cishet white woman who's like <laughs> approaching like definitely middle age but I, there's it's a different point of view it's a different yeah. perspective and i just think it's softer um, yeah. And I think we need softer voices in this space. It's why I love the TikTok community. Like, I'm obsessed. Yeah. yeah, I totally feel that. I feel like that's what I've loved so much about this podcast is getting to like highlight so many different voices and, um, you know, people uh, that are, you know, that are like experts in their fields, but haven't really gotten a lot of reach or haven't had their voices heard much. And, um, bringing like younger voices on, bringing a lot of women on, bringing, uh, people from a lot of different backgrounds on. So I'm, I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing here. And particularly the part about like being able to read a book that feels good to read and is not because so many of the popular trauma books out there are really triggering you know I mean there's there's a reason that um so many people have such a hard time reading the body keeps the score and some of those like big titles and I think it actually scares some people away from doing trauma work because it's like oh my god this is like really scary and intense and there's all of these like super triggering stories and so having a a kind of landing place to to get informed that's a little bit gentler and more accessible is I think really important. Well, and I I had to balance between making it academic enough. Like, you know, when I talk about epigenetics, like I have to explain what that is. It's like how you can inherit trauma responses and how that actually happens on a you know biological level is amazing. But you can write about it in a really academic way and it's like when you read Stephen Porges's books, they're really written for a clinician. Like it's mm-hmm. hard to be a person who doesn't understand basic science and jump right. into Stephen Porges. Yes. Um, I mean, some of his like polyvagal safety, the more newer ones uh, definitely have been less academically inclined. But for me to actually do the background research for this book, I needed a whole heck of a science degree and a medical mm-hmm. degree. And and then what I wanted to do was to translate it. So when I was doing my doctorate, I was trying to explain like my sweet spot isn't that I know all the things. My sweet spot is knowing how to say it in a way that people can understand it. And that's why I think, you know, I did reasonably well on TikTok is because people were like, oh, I get it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know TikTok has been such a great resource. I'm so, so happy that we connected there. And I just like, when I, it's so funny because when I joined TikTok, I was one of those people that just joined because it was like the beginning of the pandemic. And I was like, well, everyone's talking about TikTok and I'm really bored. So I guess I'll join and, and see what's going on. And then at that time I had started to do my own research. Like that's when I was really diving into learning about polyvagal theory. I was in graduate school at that time. I was reading Pete Walker's book. I was learning all this stuff about complex trauma and I was having my own awakening about how I had had such bad experiences in the mental health field because I had been in therapy since I was 13 years old and I had only ever gotten cognitive behavioral therapy. And so I had spent like over 10 years wondering why I wasn't getting better, like what, you know, if there was anything out there for me that was going to help me with, you know, with the things that I struggled with. And so my eyes were just being totally open during that time. And I was like, you know what, maybe there's some people on TikTok that would be interested in this. I guess I'll start making videos. So I started making videos about polyvagal theory, about CPTSD, and it just blew up and there was so much engagement. And I think that's when I realized like, wow, this is like, there's like a lot of people that resonate with this. And there's a lot of people that have had this exact same experience in the mental health field. And 
it's been so exciting to see over the last few years. Cause I mean, I feel like even in 2020, when I started talking about this, there were very few people talking about this online. Like I remember looking up on TikTok, CPTSD, and there was maybe only like a couple other accounts that were making content about it. And now in the last few years, I feel like it has just grown so much. Like there's so much more awareness and discussion. So that's been really exciting to witness. Have you noticed that? Oh, totally. But yeah, there, there's a, it's a double-edged sword, right? So on the one hand that we're, we're helping people resource, we're helping people find the information they need. We're sharing with each other. Like, um, I will confess that I studied one of my therapeutic modalities because of you. Really? You Which did one? NARM. Oh, cool. You said, you said like a year ago, um, once I finished grad school, I think I'll study NARM. And I was like, what the fuck is NARM? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I, I like had to look it up and I was like, oh my God, I need this. And so it took a year, like actually to get certified at level two NARM was a fairly intense process such a huge gift. I really love their newest book. Like the one that was out back then was not the easiest read, but they- Healing Developmental Trauma, that one. Yeah. This one is a Mm -hmm. practical approach to healing healing developmental trauma. And it is a much easier read. It's more coherent. Like it just Mm -hmm. makes more sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But the NARM approach has been really helpful for me from like that cognitive perspective. And it's exactly what we talked about. It's like this Mm -hmm. non-shame-based way. It's just like, how is this adaptive? your survival strategies. Um, I'm a huge fan of NARM, but I never would have heard of it if it wasn't for you. (laughs) Um, But on the other hand, people have to practice discernment because there is a lot of misinformation out there. Like there's so many people who have this video. It's like, that's my trauma talking. It's like, well, not really. I just think that's just a you thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, they don't really know. And it's good that people are talking about trauma and they're starting to recognize that they might have it. But there is also like um, just an overuse of the word. And so oh, yeah. like for those of us who understand it from a clinical perspective, like we're using it in a really specific way. Right. And like, I don't want it to become like the word smurf where it just like means anything. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like um, in terms of people that are just trying to make a buck, like that's something that I have a lot of concern about too, because there's so many people that learn maybe a little bit about trauma and then are like, I'm going to start marketing coaching services about this. And what really concerns me is I see people on TikTok that are offering what us as clinicians and practitioners know is not ethical to promote, which is basically take this workshop and all your problems will be fixed, right? Like this, these very like grandiose promises of mm-hmm. healing where it's like, all you need to do is learn this breath work and learn how to regulate your nervous system. And you're never going to have to deal with these issues ever again. And like, you know, it's the key to a wonderful, beautiful life. And just really um, kind of selling people this like idealistic fantasy about healing. And I, I have a lot of concern about that kind kind of content online and there's a lot of it now there's a lot there's of a lot of it yeah. yeah um I totally agree with you and and I think what they're what they don't understand and I'll I mean uh, some of your viewers will have a greater understanding of it but when you look at the three stages of trauma healing um the first stage is establishing safety in the mind-body system the second stage is process work and um reframing the these painful memories and the third phase is resourcing and reconnecting yeah they're skipping the second stage. <laughs> like the, mm-hmm. you can't, you can't do that in a workshop. Um, right. Well, actually that's not true. When I studied with Bessel van der Kolk in person, I have a lot to say about it that I'm not willing to say publicly, but what mm-hmm. I will say is we learned a technique called psychodrama. 
And oh, yeah. mm-hmm. you can actually do trauma healing in a workshop uh, in person um, through um, grabbing audience members that you've learned to trust over the course of the week to become your real parents and your ideal parents and to embody that. That actually healed trauma in like a space of an hour or two. Like it was, yeah. it was phenomenal how much work you can process uh, in that way. So it's not that I've never seen trauma being processed in a workshop, but you know, a person who is a coach doesn't have that um, safety. They they right. can't keep you safe, and and the ability to make sure that you're staying safe while you're processing is the most important thing. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I, I just don't think people should be processing in those kinds of ways. I mean, uh, attunement and rehealing of the relationship and holding that safe space for the process work is my job. <laughs> like, yeah. That is, that is what we do. And I, it really does concern me that you can worsen somebody's trauma by asking them to do any kind of process work mm-hmm. or bring up their trauma. I mean, even like a writing workshop, if you don't have a background to know how to contain a person, if they flood or freeze yeah. during the writing of their trauma, yeah, you could make it worse. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I actually did a previous podcast episode about psychodrama where I, I learned about it and I was like, wow, that's so cool. And same with um, with coherence therapy. As I've been doing these coherence therapy trainings, um, the there are training videos where you see Bruce Ecker, like the, you know, the founder of the modality do these Um, these live sessions with people at trainings where basically like one of the therapists, you know, gets to come up or an audience member gets to come up and and do a session. And there are some videos I've seen where he's actually able to take people through like the whole coherence therapy process. And people are able to have these like transformational healing experiences in, you know, an hour or maybe like one or two sessions. And it's so cool. Like, it's very cool. And some of the videos they do use the audience members, especially for like attachment related injuries, where basically, you know, someone is like connecting with those, those core beliefs and those core wounds and schemas that they have. And then, um, the therapist is basically facilitating that person to then connect with like the audience and the other people in the room to have a kind of disconfirming experience of seeing that, like, you know, maybe all these people respect you and care about you and, you know, are not, um, you know, not hostile towards you. Or So I've seen examples of that kind of thing where it can happen really quickly in these really like particular ways, but, oh my gosh, that takes so much skill and so much training. And, you know, mm-hmm. so like, that is not something that I would just jump into with anyone. And I mean, I I've never been able to, um, reach a resolution that quickly because I think I tend to really want to take it slow because I work with people that experience so much flooding and dissociation. I kind of follow the, the lines of like slower is faster a lot of the time when it comes to Mm, trauma healing. So I definitely, I would just encourage people to be really, yeah, discerning about, about who they get that information and that support from. Well, and it's interesting because this was one of my hesitations around putting the word toolkit in the cover of my book because, or the title, because I don't want it to feel like I'm offering you this like quick fix to like fix your trauma, read my right. book, fix your trauma. Like the, the toolkit really is stage one. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and it's letting you know that you need to do stage two, but it's, it's helping you with stage one and establishing safety. Um, and and just gaining a better understanding of what you need. Yeah. So I I was really hesitant with trying to figure out what was the right word to put in there because toolkit does sound like a 
you know, like just go through stages one through six and you'll have figured it out. Mm -hmm. And it's not like that at all. So, so the toolkit is just like you getting resourced around the kinds of things that you can practice that might be moving towards healing, but is it going to get you all the way there? If you have complex trauma, heck no. Mm -hmm. Um, But will you know what steps to take? Maybe the problem, the problem that I also don't, don't enjoy is that you know, those steps are not fully accessible to people. So, right. you know, in Canada, in the public system, the predominant thing that I can offer people is, you know, a six to nine month wait list where they will see a practitioner of CBT who's probably a supervised student mm-hmm. and they'll get six sessions. And right. that's, you know, so, oh yeah, we've got some free mental health within the public system, but it's not adequate for complex yeah. trauma. And that that's the thing that I really bulk at is because the people who generally need it the most, who are not able to, you know, do work in, in capitalism because their trauma is driving their, their brain and their amygdalas are firing all the time. Well, if you can't pay 250 bucks for a session, then you can't get good therapy in Canada. Generally, I mean, there's definitely people who offer a sliding scale and there's some nonprofits who have some trauma therapists, but it's, it is really hard. So that's another thing that I want to change at the policy level is just to say, how could we recognize how many people actually need trauma therapy and that it's just not accessible? And that's, um, I mean, I could go down so many different rabbit holes in the context of a medically assisted death, which is about to become legal for mental health next year. Oh, wow. yeah. I'm I'm going to, you know, jump on that podium and start making a lot of noise about it because I believe mm. in MAID as a concept and I mm. actually provide MAID. But do I want to do it for people who have never actually had access to good quality therapy for the thing that's happening to them? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, no. Right. Right. Yeah. I know the ex- the accessibility stuff is just heartbreaking for me and something that I struggle with so much as like, you know, a newer therapist. I've been practicing for a little over two years at this point. Um, so I'm still still pretty new into my career. And the the system, especially, I mean, the way that it works in America, and it sounds pretty similar in Canada, is just so messed up for everyone because you know, new therapists generally get paid very poorly. Um, either you're at a giant agency that's kind of taking advantage of you and paying you a really low split, like the, you know, the owner is taking the majority of the money from your sessions, or um, you're working as like a contractor or in a private practice where taxes are super high and you're paying for supervision and you're paying, you know, a, a split fee. And so the the issue of taking insurance adds so many like extra barriers because I mean, I'll, I'll just be honest. I can't, I cannot handle taking insurance. It's so insanely stressful. I mean, most insurance panels won't even uh, credential me because of my license. Since I'm an LMSW, they, they won't credential you until you're an LCSW in Texas. So I, I actually haven't even really had the option to take insurance, but even if I did take insurance, um, it is such a pain in the butt. Like I'm always hearing about, you know, you will, you won't get paid for your sessions for multiple months. It causes all of this financial instability. They pay you pretty low reimbursement rates for your sessions here. And, um, I've even heard stories about insurance basically coming back to, this happens all the time where the insurance will get back to the therapist and say, actually, we're not going to cover all of these sessions because, you know, some, some stupid, (laughs) some stupid thing that wasn't checked off some box that wasn't met some criteria. Um, or we're actually, you know, all of these sessions that you did are actually not going to be paid out by us. And so it creates even more paperwork and, and, you know, financial strain. And so, 
um, for me to not burn out and to be able to like make a living as a therapist, private pay has been the best option, but then I feel terrible about, you know, the lack of accessibility that that creates. And I try to do as much sliding scale as possible. And I just, it's like once, when you really start thinking about all the layers of, of the issues with, with trauma care and mental health care, you realize just how, how much of a bad setup it is really for, for everyone, for practitioners and for, for clients trying to seek care. Well, and this is why we need systems level change. Like individuals yeah. like you are not going to be able to solve this problem because you're going to put yourself at a, you know, life disadvantage if you try to single-handedly tackle it. But we need right. like policy <laughs> leaders and we need government and we need people to understand. I mean, for one thing, we need them to understand it's cost effective. Like if we're trying to get people um, to be healthier in their minds and bodies, this is essential to so many people. Yeah. And so to provide this doorway so that they can be, you know, achieve well-being in a totally new way. Um, it For me, it's the most upstream that I can think of while still being a clinician. Mm -hmm. um, like as a doctor, I mean, first thing I did was hospital-based practice, which is so far downstream. You're dealing with people with like end stage and severe illness. Mm -hmm. And then as a family physician, I could be a little bit more preventative. I'd be like, oh, okay, why is your blood pressure high? Why can't we get your diabetes under control? Yeah. Why are these behaviors manifesting? And then I started to understand that most right. of that was trauma. Um, so then I kept moving further and further upstream. And I think the more that leaders understand that this is the upstream intervention when it comes to mm -hmm. medical health, like yeah. medical and psychological and social health, because the ACE study proved that like every single yeah. thing that they studied was exponentially increased with the number of developmental trauma events that happened. So we could intervene at that upstream level by healing trauma we can sell this as something cost effective and and that's why i really wanted to to mention things like policy because i i just don't think that this one on one thing that we do is going to fix these bigger system level things and it continues to create trauma for through like structural violence and, and oppression yeah. and inaccessibility and you know i'm i'm at this stage in my career where i'm like well i'm attacking that too like if i just do one on one stuff all day um and I mean, I'm in a position I can do that now. I've been working for over 20 years. So I'm like, what are these other leverage points in the systems where I can affect change yeah. and make those changes systemically? So that's a lot of what I want to do in the book is to help people understand how pervasive it is and what a big difference it makes Yeah, when you move that far upstream. And I... um. Yeah, I mean, what I'm trying to do right now is to to get gigs where I talk to doctors, especially family docs, GPs, cool. primary primary care docs, pediatricians, and if the organizer gives a copy of my book, and then I do kind of this overall thing, so they get to understand how trauma is showing up in their practice. Yeah, that is the kind of thing that I think is going to change systems. Yes, yeah, which I feel like it's about it's about addressing the root instead of just treating the symptoms, right? Which is like it's the same thing in the mental health field. I feel like for so long western western mental health and, you know, medicine has functioned around just treating symptoms and managing symptoms and not addressing things at their root. Um and so it's so it's such a like valuable shift to even be asking those questions, right? Of like why are these people, you know, 
continuing to struggle with these symptoms, whether they're mental health or physical health symptoms, because I feel like for a long time, those questions weren't even being asked, right? It was just kind of like, all right, let's just, you know, let's manage what's showing up on that most kind of visible superficial level without ever exploring what the deeper causes are of this suffering. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think people just get stuck in the paradigm that they know, you know, and for us to be this disruptive and say, Hey, how much of this, you know, Con- construct that you have just agreed on is is like the true thing is actually trauma it's so disruptive that you get pushback mm-hmm. and we have to anticipate it it makes sense but this is why i love tiktok and honestly i think this is why they're scared of tiktok is because mm-hmm. it's a paradigm changing thing to mm-hmm. be like oh my gosh i understand this thing at a completely different level now yeah and then you get to interact like you know there's a ethicist in Sweden and there's this politician in wherever like there are people who are on TikTok that um are listening to others and hearing these you know divisive ways of approaching these paradigms that we thought were locked in stone and and they're just not yeah um yeah so i i mm. think this kind of community based conversation is what's going to make change and i think that's why they keep wanting to shut it down yeah, I, I think that's totally true. Um, speaking of paradigm shifting, you mentioned earlier psychedelic therapy. Do you think we could touch on that a little bit before we wrap up? Because I haven't talked about that on on the podcast yet. Yeah, I for sure I can. Um, I have to be a little cagey about what I say publicly, but yeah. um, I actually I did three trainings as a psychedelic journey guide. My <laughs> intention was to do guided um, therapy in this way. Um, so I studied through the Polaris Institute, which is ketamine-based training in California. Mm-hmm. And then I did fluence and synthesis. And I think synthesis is now more Europe-based because they they invested in this huge property in Oregon and something went wrong with the zonings. So um oh. so yeah, there's these there's these amazing training programs that are helping you learn how to do guiding in a really good way. But what I've been seeing is that a lot of the psychedelic therapy institutes that are available, it's just capitalism. Like they'll mm. put you in pods, they'll put earbuds on and they'll be like, okay, we're going to give you ketamine because it's the, the legal one in most places and see in an hour. Mm. And that's not what I loved. I loved the relational aspect. Yeah. Unconditional positive regard. I loved, you know, warmth and support and nurturing and that's just not, you know, the process in lots of places. I can't say everywhere, but it's just not what makes money. And this is, yeah. you know, a lot of the places where they're doing everything above board and legal, um, they've got to make a buck. And that, right. that was hard for me to to realize. So I have had my personal experiences with, with medicine um, in a good way. And I know how transformative that can be. And we just can't legally and kind of structurally offer that easily. Like Mm. it's, it either costs so much money because like it's often a full day of therapy. So if you have somebody who's guiding you for a day, (laughs) like at their hourly rate, that's, that's a pretty big thing. Yeah. Um, Some people have pivoted to do group work. Mm. Um, Personally, I just think you can get so much more out of it one-on-one. Yeah. But I have, you know, heard of people where that 
can be really helpful. I am nervous about saying like, let's just send people for like an ayahuasca ceremony in Costa Rica because there are yeah. a lot of shady elements. Yes, I've heard. Now. Yeah, I've heard some really scary stories about about things that have happened in those spaces. Yeah, I mean, some of these medicines you can actually die or you can end up in a psychotic break. So it's mm -hmm. not something you should take lightly. Mm -hmm. um, when we learn how to be a guide, we learn about set and setting. So set is your mindset. Like, how are you showing up? If you're just meeting me for the first time and I'm going to give you some medicine, that is going to set the stage for a lack of trust for a person who's been through trauma. Mm. And that mindset is not going to be... Um, relaxed and calm and in what we would call a ventral vagal state. Right. So if you're if you're already heading towards a trauma response and then you take some medicine and enhance that, you're going to worsen the trauma. Mm -hmm. Um and then yeah. setting is obviously just like where are you located in in space and what's around you and oh my gosh, these things matter so much. Yeah. 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 So I, I read um, a lot of the research that was coming out from the MAPS uh, clinical trials a while ago, where I think they were studying the effects of um, MDMA guided therapy and then psilocybin guided therapy. And just to like give like a brief synopsis for, for people listening that might mm -hmm. not have heard about it, you know, there was indication for, for both of those um, interventions being really helpful for PTSD as well as like quote unquote, treatment resistant depression. Um, and I know that with, with MDMA, it, uh, deactivates kind of the amygdala, um, and fear responses in the brain. And so people are able to basically go into processing trauma without becoming like triggered and, and flooded and dissociated. So it like, that was one of the, the things that I read about the benefits of that. And then psilocybin is shown to actually like, uh, create new neural pathways and new neural connections and can heal some of like the brain damage that, that occurs in trauma. So there's really, you know, cool research about it. And I, I also have often wished a, that it was more accessible, you know, B that it was more legal, especially for me practicing in Texas. Like there's no way, you know, that I can, oh, yeah. that I can get away with like referring any of my clients to that or, or recommending that to any of my clients. But I I'll be honest, there are definitely situations with clients where like, that's what I think of. I'm like, man, like, I really think that one of those, you know, assisted guided therapies would be really helpful here, but there's just no, like there, I mean, I think that there's the people that have been able to do that are mostly, like you said, people that have a lot of money and are, are able to afford really expensive, um, treatments or people that are participating in these like very specific clinical trials. Like it's not something that has been made accessible in any mainstream way at this point from my awareness. Right. And, and I want to say not yet, because I really think it's coming because yeah. it is one of the most efficacious things and it is pharmacology. So there's yeah. going to be some people who can, I mean, hopefully not too much, but there, there will be <laughs> patents flying around. So they've done level three clinical trials on a lot of the psychedelic medicines now related to PTSD. Mm -hmm. um, and they've done, you know, neuroradiological neuro studies. So um, one of the things that I learned that was so interesting, and, and maybe you've talked about this on your podcast before, but the concept of the default mode network. So when they try to figure out what is the seat of consciousness in the human body, like where do we understand ourselves? Like mm. who is me? What is me? Um, the part of our brain that lights up is the default mode network. And so it's activated when we're doing self-reflection. Mm. Um, it's activated when we're when we're thinking of that construct of like, who am I in the world and how do I show up? Th yeah. These are the parts of the brain that light up. 
And when you take um, most psychedelic medicines, that network goes offline. So one of the things hmm. that you lose is your sense of self in a good way. Interesting. If it's, gui- okay. if it's guided in the right set and setting. So when they, when they, when you are helped, so the first thing that shows up is a greater sense of interconnectedness. If you do a, a therapeutic modality that's quite, um, and I'm it, it it creates a lot of derealization, depersonalization. Like you really are dissociating clinically. You're 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 disconnecting from your body. Um, so it it mm. is like ketamine is a dissociative agent. It's one of the reasons why it works as an anesthetic. Like the the way I knew ketamine when I was in medical training was it was an anesthetic that we used in pediatrics if we had to like set a kid's broken wrist or something. So it helps them leave their body while you're working on it. Well, in the context of trauma, that level of dissociation and that disconnection from your default mode network is like, you're just a little, you know, fleck of space in this greater universe. And mm. and to have this like sense of dissolution of the ego and this major sense of interconnectedness yeah. is such a powerful thing for the human brain with the right set and setting. Yeah. Um, so do I think that people should like, you know, buy some Molly off the street and like figure this out on their own? <laughs> Heck no. <laughs> but, but in a guided way, yeah. once you've dropped that ego and you start asking the right questions, the most beautiful things can show up. And yeah. I've not seen anything else that gets, gets you to that place as quickly and as profoundly. And you don't even really know what your destination could look like on the other side of it. So um, yeah, I'm really hopeful that both, you know, the States and Canada will approve a lot more of these agents because they are proven to be efficacious. They're very quick. And then we can start to work on how it's being used and make sure that it's, it's being used with the right setting. And, mm-hmm. you know, the more of us that have interest and in influence, um, the better off I think it it will all be because yeah. it's not going in the direction that I prefer just yet. I think it's, it's kind of like cannabis. It's like, oh, mm. it got le- legalized in Canada and now there's like a place on every block. Well, you know, people started catching on to ketamine and that people wanted psychedelic experiences right. and four ketamine clinics opened in my city in the space of a year. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, we, as much as I think there's tremendous potential here, I just think it has to be done in a good way, like everything else. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, and I'll, I'll speak candidly about my own experience and say, I did that in college. I did a lot of, um, experimenting with, uh, psychedelics and with MDMA and, you know, not in a clinical setting, buying it off the street. And what I found was that I, I did, I had these experiences for, for me as, you know, a, a traumatized, like 21 year old that hadn't gotten any proper mental health care at that time. I had experiences that were actually, you know, really like profound for me where I would, I would process things and I would come to these different understandings of myself and of my struggles. And I would kind of have like an afterglow where I would maybe have an easier time with some of my issues for a while afterwards. But then what I lacked was any support to integrate those things longer term, because Mm -hmm. I would have these like big experiences. And then I would just go back to my exact same life, exact same lifestyle, same lack of support, you know, same 
unresolved things. And so the effects wouldn't last. It would just kind of be this like short-term burst of like, oh, wow, like all these realizations, I feel so much better. And then, you know, within a few weeks, I'm kind of back to my like default autopilot states. Um, But I can so imagine that if I had actually had like support to really integrate the things that came up during those experiences and kind of like keep a thread going, it would have been incredible for me. And I I know that there are people that specialize in that too, like psychedelic integration, where they're there to basically help you, you know, integrate those experiences that you have so they can have more lasting effects. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely part of the trainings that I did. And it's what I've personally experienced and it's so transformational. I I wish this was more accessible to more people. Um, in a way that was safe. And that's like the safety has to come first. So I don't want to say like, let's flood the market and give this to everybody. Right. (laughs) We we have to figure out pathways towards, towards safety first. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's exciting because when I think about, um, people who struggle to respond to traditional trauma therapy, whether it's because their cognitive brain is no longer accessible and they're just so shut down, they're so stuck in a free state, Mm. Um, or people who um, just get really, really stuck on a foundational framework Mm -hmm. that lacks safety, um, this is the kind of thing that could be helpful. And Mm -hmm. I... I mean, I do think we're moving in the right direction. We've had some states that have legalized, you know, psilocybin. In Canada, we've had these um, exemptions that have been given specific to palliative care. But Mm. I I think we're moving the needle. And because the clinical trials are so good, um, which, you know, is replicating what happened in the 1960s and then the racist war on drugs shut it all down. Um, I mean, well, and the researchers kind of shot themselves in the foot by just uh, um, being problematic is t- taking mm-hmm. the substances along with their in, in investigative research subjects. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really strange the yeah. stuff that was happening in the sixties. Yeah. But um, the amount of progress that we lost—it's really heartbreaking because we would be yeah. so much further along right now. And I think when we look at something like the pandemic, or we look at the climate emergency, and the amount of collective trauma that's in our you know, ecosystem, like it's in our collective soma, we need some bigger solutions um, because that trauma is manifesting in ways that are continuing to harm. I mean, if you look at what's happening in the Southern states and in um, conservative Canada, there's a lot of people who are responding out of their own trauma Mm -hmm. and they are trying to find a sense of control when they're feeling this deep uncertainty and they're finding control wherever they can, it is really harming people. And if they were to understand, well, this is where the seat of your discomfort is and to work at it at that level, I just don't think we'd have these system level problems that we're running into right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. I feel like we could keep talking forever. Um, before we do wrap up, I wanted to just ask, like, is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you wanted to talk about today or anything else that you wrote about in your book that you think is, I mean, I feel like there's so much important stuff in here, but that you wanted to to mention on the podcast. Well, I, I, I brushed on it a little bit, but I, I think the concept of equity is really important for me, uh, yeah. which I know it is for you too, but um, people who 
are in equity deserving communities. So whether they're racialized, um, LGBTQT, it's, it's pride weekend here in Calgary. Um, I work with refugees, but like newcomers, mm. th there are communities that are placed at risk. And if we were to broaden our policies and to say, well, where, where could we make it the most accessible first? I really think we need to look at these equity deserving communities. So does everybody need access to trauma work? 100%. But the people that have been structurally harmed um, are the ones that are most deserving of this equity. So I think we just really need to advocate in those spaces for very good trauma work yeah. to be accessible. So that's a part of what I'm trying to do. So one of the things I've done with my book is I'll donate like a box to um, you know, the refugee clinic to an indigenous healing lodge to mm -hmm. places where there are people who've faced a lot of um, structural oppression. And that's, that's one thing that's really important to me is, is yes, everyone deserves it, but there's some people who are continuing to be harmed by systems that really need to access it first. And yeah, um, yeah I just think that's not something I overtly said, but yeah, no, thank you for, for touching on that more. And yeah, I was thinking when you were talking that, especially for people that have experienced a mix of complex trauma in their own personal lives, but then compounded by experiences of like marginalization and oppression and like, you know, being hurt by systemic inequity. Um, I think it adds all of these barriers to finding competent mental health care. Like I, one of the things that I hear from people a lot is, okay, so it's already hard enough to find a therapist that you know, practices in a way where they are informed on complex PTSD, where they don't just do CBT, where they offer more experiential healing. But then, you know, add on top of that, I really need a therapist that understands racialized trauma. Like I really need a therapist that understands um, being autistic or, you know, how being neurodivergent and the trauma that comes from that. Or I really yeah. need a therapist that understands um, uh, intergenerational trauma, you know, from being from being indigenous or from, you know, having these different like generational, uh, historical traumas or so it's like the, the more kind of compounding experiences that you have in, in those different identities, the more difficult it can be to find practitioners that are truly going to be able to like understand you, um, and understand your experience of trauma. So I think on the educational level, I really hope that more therapists will be trained in those kinds of things too, like in graduate school, um, you know, to have more of a focus on trauma, isn't just one thing. It's like, there's a, there's a difference between the trauma that you experience as someone that doesn't face any systemic inequity and you experience trauma within your family system versus the trauma of someone that maybe experiences, you know, family-based trauma, but also like cultural society, societal trauma. Yeah, exactly. You just nailed it. It's it's intersectionality. And I just yeah. don't think we consider it as much as we should in trauma because it's compounding and it's synergistic. And um, the people who are facing the most um, are the ones that are not the most deserving. But um, if we were to focus our very limited resources in that direction, I think we just need to consider intersectionality. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for um, coming on and sharing your expertise. I think this was such a great conversation and I'm happy that we got to talk a little bit more about the bigger picture because normally with these episodes, I focus more on the very like clinical, you know, um, what does it look like to heal from complex trauma? How do we use these different therapy interventions? So I'm really grateful to have a conversation about kind of some of these bigger picture issues. I think it's so relevant and important.
Yeah, I I did too. I, it was so funny too because I, I a lot of times I'll end up talking about the different somatic practices that are in my book that people have never heard of, like havening or tremoring, and I'll get into the weeds with it. So, um, yeah, it was just interesting that we didn't we didn't necessarily <laughs> go there, but we still had such a great conversation. I think it's because you you just get it at such a deeper level. So thank you. That was awesome. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad we did. Cause I mean, I'm sure the, the things about the somatic practices would be interesting to people, but I, I've definitely gone a lot into that stuff on this podcast. So I think it's refreshing and it'll be interesting for people to get to engage on kind of like a different level of, of theory here. So um, I will link your book and your website in the podcast description for anybody that wants to, to check it out. Um, and yeah, thank you so much, Christy. It was great great having you on. Oh yeah, I really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you so much.